Hello everybody, I'm Viktor Kovalenko from the United States and this is my podcast Ukraine Decoded. As a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran of the first Russian invasion, I organize expert discussions about the ongoing Russian war against Ukraine. With me today is Brian Bonner. He is an American from Minnesota but permanently lives in Kyiv, even now during the war. For many years till recently, Brian was a chief editor of the Kyiv Post, Ukraine English language newspaper. We will talk about politics, revolutions, presidents, sabotage of reforms and of course the Russian war. Welcome to my podcast, Brian. Happy to be here, Victor. It is a bit of luck to talk to you. You said you are lucky to have electricity in Kyiv between long power outages that are caused by the Russian missile attacks on the capital. How are you doing in Kyiv so far? Well, it's been a tough year and it looks like it's getting harder. First of all, Kyiv is my home. I mean, my second home. I'm an American, but I've lived in Ukraine for a long time and I feel like I need to be here during the war to feel it. You know, also I do work. I have editing job that is related to Ukraine uh, sometimes. But I've been out of the country three times this year, and it's not easy. <laughs> it's a 30-hour journey, either by train or by bus to Poland. But I've been back to America three times. So I would say I've been in the country half the time, out of the country half the time. It's really getting rougher. The electrical outages are, are lasting longer. I understand the situation is even worse in uh, other parts of Ukraine. So, and really, it's tough. I mean, I mostly I've had heat, mostly I've had internet, but you know, the outages are getting longer. It's getting colder. That's the situation now. What do you think? Will Ukrainian civilians survive this winter after Russia damaged the energy and water supply infrastructure? Well, there's two schools, and I think we're already seeing an uptick in refugees, just because people with families, it's very, very difficult. If they don't have the power, no heat, no internet, no water, if they're in a living in an area which is a high target zone for Russian missiles, it's difficult. And they're, they are leaving for this reason. At the other hand, there's many people who are staying and they're very determined and they're here to fight and defend their country. And everybody needs to be in it, as, as everybody knows. Not only the, the military, but the civilians, not only Ukrainians, but foreigners, not only people here, but living abroad. We understand that the calendar is going to be very rough. I mean, January and February, look at the historical temperatures in Ukraine. It's very tough. And so even if their interception rate is 80% on missiles, 90%, the ones that do get through are causing damage. Brian, why did you decide to move from the United States to Ukraine? It was a complete accident. I had a longtime former journalist colleague from the University of Minnesota work in the U.S. Embassy in 1996. They were doing a exchange program. I came, I saw, I loved it. I knew I was in a dynamic country that's going to make history. Little did I know how much history is going to make and how how dynamic the situation was. And so... I haven't been here continuously since 1996, but I've been on and off, you know, mostly as editor of the Kiev Post in 1999 and then from 2008 to 2021. 
and it gets in your blood. I mean, this is really, uh, it's become a cliche, but it's really true. This is the front line of democracy. The consequences of losing this war will be horrific for the world. And that's why Ukraine must win, can win, will win. Uh, but it's not going to be able to do it alone. It's going to take long-term Western support and long-term support of friends around the world. As a former editor of the newspaper, can you explain why Ukraine was slow in reforms during three decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union? It didn't become a member of the European Union or NATO. Well, it cost Ukraine a lot not to be there. They missed out on the 90s, and we both know the reason. I mean, there is endemic, serious corruption. There was a huge pro-Russian contingent, not the majority, but enough people with pro-Russian or Soviet nostalgia to slow things down. And there is old-fashioned greed and corruption. Independent Ukraine never developed the institutions. There's never been anybody prosecuted or convicted for high-level corruption. And this is one of the most corrupt countries, you know, in the world in terms of lack of oversight, lack of transparency. Now, it has improved greatly since the day I came here in 1996, and that has come through civil society, that has come through more national awareness, that's come from pressure from outside, pressure from inside. There's hope that after the war, that they're going to have, for once, a zero tolerance of corruption and are going to demand that their institutions establish rule of law and establish uh, justice and have independent courts, which we've never had in Ukraine. So part of it's the Soviet legacy, part of it is being in poverty, and part of it is being isolated. Ukrainians now are not isolated. They've seen the world for many years. They've been traveling to Europe without visas. They've gotten educations abroad. Uh, they bring it back and they put it to good use. So I'm hopeful, but I also understand how deeply embedded the corruption of the elite has been. In fact, the Kiev Post was killed, you know, basically because uh, many people in the elite did not want us and have been trying to kill us for a long time. They finally succeeded to the detriment of Ukraine, and it, and it happened only three months before a full-blown invasion of Russia. So it's not great timing, but there are still a lot of independent voices here. True test of Ukraine's future will be, one, winning the war, and two, how well it reconstructs the nation not just rebuilds what it had, but actually changes the nation. And a lot of people are going to be watching because, you know, we have a democracy here. I mean, uh, Ukrainians are uh, allergic, I would say, to authoritarian regimes, completely different from Russia. So I'm hopeful, but I understand the problems. I'm interested to hear your opinion about presidents of Ukraine. For me, it looks like the worst president was Viktor Yanukovych, who fled to Russia in 2014. And the best president, so far, is Volodymyr Zelensky, who leads Ukraine through the war. Well, Yanukovych was indeed terrible. He was like a Kremlin agent. I mean, because of him, corruption was, you know, off the scales. Uh, I mean, it was at a very high point. And more than that, he sold out the nation. He was the one who extended the lease for the Russian Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol. You know, he allegedly took $40 billion out of the country. Three former defense ministers are still on wanted lists. Of course, investigations tend to go nowhere. But the military was hollowed out from within during his tenure. 
I'm not going to let Leonid Kuchma off the hook either. He was the one who created this oligarchy mess. And if you remember back in Ukraine, life was extremely horrible, just horrible for people under Kravchuk and Kuchma. Now, Zelensky, yes, he has risen to the occasion, rallied people, and he's a true selfless patriot who's putting his life on the line. Without him, I think Ukraine will still defend itself well because the Ukrainians are fighting for themselves and their nation. But he has been the right wartime leader. Now, step back before the war wasn't the case. He was losing popularity because he was fighting corruption. Uh, and it was not happening. In fact, there was a, not a big vote of confidence in the honesty and uh, the integrity of, of people around him and the people that he had appointed. And that's a fact. He was thin-skinned when journalists would point out corruption, including allegations involving the brother of his chief of staff. He would attack the journalists instead of saying, we'll get to the bottom of this and see what happens. Nobody gets to the bottom of anything in Ukraine. You know that. Like I said, there's never been any successful prosecution of high-level corruption. And that is going to be a problem. And it's not just corruption. It's murders. I mean, it's murders of journalists. It's murders of high-profile people. There's a lot of impunity that happened. Now, did he change after the war? Well, I think we all changed after the full-scale war. I think it was looks like it was within him. It looks like he has incredible strength. And it looks like he's decided that he's going to stay here, win, or, I mean, no matter what happens. I know people admire him. So in general, I mean, I agree with your categories. But I don't think we've had a good president in peacetime that has served the nation well. President Zelensky and his team face criticism from the United States for not preparing Ukraine to the Russian invasion. Do you think Ukraine was not prepared? Well, I think there's some truth there. I think he was in denial, uh, partly. And partly he did not want to create the panic. But we have not fully prepared since 2014, to be honest with you. I mean, as much as Poroshenko tried to establish his pro-NATO, pro-Western credentials, and he did to, to a large extent, the whole nation was not involved in this war. And we did not take the steps that indicated that we were preparing for this full-scale invasion. If they did, it was a good secret because not many did. A lot of us, and I include myself in that, relegated the war to Crimea and, and the eastern Donbass, and so it doesn't affect us. But if you look at the signs, you look back and you see this was going to come back to us. And, you know, up until recently, Russians were coming here without visas. And until recently, Russia was the largest trade partner, including after 2014. So, no, the entire nation was not alert enough. Well, instead of preparing for another strike, Ukraine made itself vulnerable. Yeah, we made ourselves vulnerable and corruption made ourselves, you know, doubly vulnerable. So that was a big problem for the country. But Putin miscalculated. He thought it would be an easy street. I understand why he miscalculated. Look how easy it was for Crimea. Look how easy it was to co-opt the West. The approval of Nord Stream 2 after the invasion of Crimea was about all you needed to know about the lack of seriousness in the West and in, in punishing Vladimir Putin and continuing business as usual. Obama administration, and I'm a Democrat. I mean, I voted for Obama. I was weak on these issues, defense issues, because they didn't believe in Ukrainians. And so now... We owe a big debt of gratitude, and I agree with those who say, you know, we owe Ukrainians a lot because they showed, the, you know, the Russian army is a hollow army. Russia was overestimated. 
continues to be overestimated. Ukrainians continue to be underestimated. Brian, your opinion about previous Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko? He led the country through the first invasion and signed the Minsk agreements with Russia. Those Minsk agreements bought some time. They bought us time, which we didn't always use well. But again, you know, if she knew that the full-scale invasion was coming, why weren't the weapons coming and why weren't the sanctions coming and why why did she get deeper into bed economically with Russia? But it also gave Russia time to rebuild and to assess the situation. You know, Minsk 1 and 2 came after extreme battlefield defeats. Ukraine's basically had to negotiate a bad deal with the gun at their head, and still Russia didn't live up to the agreement. Between the invasions, the Ukrainian presidents Poroshenko and Zelensky began limiting influence of oligarchs on the economy and government, and also on the mass media. Is it a serious effort by the Ukrainian authorities? Well, we'll know it's serious when Igor Kolomoisky is indicted for bank fraud. Six, he, I mean, allegedly, <laughs> and it's quite well documented, $6 billion was uh, stolen, unexplained, removed from the largest bank that he owned, Privat Bank, and we still haven't seen a criminal indictment. I don't think we'll ever see a criminal indictment. You know, the way money flows work. I mean, once the money is transferred two, three times, if there's no criminal case, good luck trying to recover it. The last I checked, they were still trying to recover the money that Lazarenko stole and was convicted of stealing in 1996 when he was prime minister. So the thieves know this, and uh, it's not a good situation. We'll see. It has to happen. It's not, you know, to depersonify it. What the oligarchs represent is monopoly control, stifling of competition, bribing or sort of uh, degrading the institutions of law enforcement and government and parliament or buying them off or influencing them. And that influence has to get out, whether it's from mainly from oligarchs, but also from whoever else buying off Ukraine's politicians and, you know, having people in key law enforcement institutions who aren't doing their job. Brian, how do you evaluate work of your fellow journalists of Ukraine during the ongoing war? Well, we're in a tough situation because war is one of the few, you know, times in the society where censorship is justified, but only a certain limited censorship. I mean, you can't do anything that hurts the troops or hurts the government or strategically, you know, gives aid to the enemy. I am worried because there's no critical voices. We think corruption is lower. We don't know. Nobody knows because there's nobody looking at it. All the aid is getting through. There's a patriotism or most of the aid is getting through. But we don't know that. We can't answer that. Nobody can answer that because nobody's looking. So there's going to be some accountability, I think, that's going to be imposed from the outside. But back to the news media, news media has never been good. It's been an oligarch playground for as long as I've been here. It's unfortunate. The commercial possibilities for financially independent have gone down, you know, during the war. There's no advertising. A lot of print publications killed their print editions. The key post where I used to work is subsidized by a rich guy, okay? The Kiev Independent, where most of the key post staff went, has a better model, but it's also a little bit dangerous because they're dependent on contributions from readers and from grants. It's not good. We need a plurality of voices. I admire the journalism that is going on, some really good journalism that's happening by journalists who are, as you know, overworked, underpaid, and basically saints. But 
this lockstep, you know, one voice, hopefully that'll be a thing that ends after the war also, because we absolutely need to have a robust independent media here from top to bottom. And we haven't had that. Our freedom is a second to none, in, I think, in the former Soviet space, uh, with the exceptions of the small Baltics, perhaps. But the Ukrainians have a robust desire to have a plurality of voices that uh, gives them an opportunity to find out what the truth is. What is your opinion about the coverage of Ukraine by the Western media? The big bureaus are, are relocating from Moscow, where they have no freedom, and uh, moving to Kiev. Going to be a big plus for Ukraine in the long run. And generally, the resources that they've been putting into this story are enormous, and I think it's great, and I think it's helped Ukraine a lot. I'm still very, very irritated, though, because I still see stories that look like Russian propaganda. We still see a lot of op-eds from people who are often to the distant land saying Ukraine should negotiate peace. Uh, Ukraine wants peace. I mean, but peace on Russia's terms means surrender. So Ukrainians don't want surrender. Secondly, name a time where Vladimir Putin has honored any agreement that he's entered into. So it's irritating to see that. Washington Post recently had usually good coverage, usually good editorials, but recently had a horrible story, a horrible headline, as if to say that, you know, ownership of Crimea is disputed. It's not disputed at all. It's Ukrainian territory by international law. So the only people disputing that are Russia and its government. Is Ukraine winning the information war against the Russian propaganda? I think within Ukraine, yes. I haven't been to, you know, the front lines, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who are with, in bombed-out apartments who are saying, we just want this war over, we don't care about politics, if there's any left. But I think successfully within, I mean, I still think we have a job to do outside of Ukraine, but I think there's been a tremendous progress. Even people who are fence-sitters like India, you know, uh, Modi refusing to meet with Putin, that's great. Russia's influence in the former Soviet Union has collapsed. Now, Erdogan of Turkey is, you know, a very cagey, clever guy who plays both sides. But basically, he's done the right things by Ukraine in terms of the grain deal and trying to foster peace negotiations and helping, you know, allowing the drones and weapons. So I think he's on Ukraine's side, but just doesn't want to telegraph it too much because he doesn't want to cut off Putin. So we see China clearly time and time again with Biden, with uh, German Chancellor Schultz saying, take nuclear weapons off the table. And I, I think this is great. China, if it wanted to, could be very destructive to uh, Ukraine's chances of winning the war. But it looks like they don't want to be associated with a loser. And Putin is seen as a loser and somebody you don't want to associate with. A lot of that is is moral. I mean, what he's doing to Ukraine and Ukrainians is just has no justification in any war. But he he's gotten away with it for so long. He just kept gambling one too many times. How long is going to take? I don't know. It looks like he's dug in. I'm worried about the Iranian missiles. I hope he doesn't get those. And I hope if he does get those, that Israel and other Saudi Arabia and other players in the Middle East will curtail Iran's ability to arm Ukraine. Same with North Korea. I mean, obviously, if we could shut off Russia's arms supply, or their energy revenue, or reduce it anyway, Ukraine has a real, real great chance of winning this, I think, in 2023.
Based on your experience, Brian, what foreign journalists should understand about the war in Ukraine? This is a right versus wrong, democracy versus autocracy. The moral clarity of what Ukraine is doing, Ukraine has never attacked anybody, will never attack anybody, doesn't have the capacity or will to attack anybody. If Ukraine does not win, and by win I mean get all of its territory back, including Crimea, including Donbass, anything less than 100% recovery of, of territory is just going to encourage not only Vladimir Putin, it's going to encourage every other autocrat in the world. On this note, I would like to wrap up this podcast episode. My guest was Brian Bonner, a former chief editor of the Kyiv Post, the English-language newspaper in Ukraine. Brian, thank you for joining me from Kyiv. I appreciate that. I really appreciate what you're doing. I mean, I think we all have to do what we can do. At the end, I will quote a few more thoughts from Brian that he emailed me after our interview was ended. He wants to emphasize that the West is still holding back fighter jets, modern battle tanks, attackums rockets, air defense systems, and so forth. If Ukraine had this from the start, the war may be over by now, he added. On the next day after we had a talk, Russian military struck Kyiv with missiles. Again. So Brian Bonner, as other city residents, had to hide in underground shelters. Kyiv authorities reported that air defenses intercepted and shut down 10 Iran-made loitering munitions. Dear listeners, please support this podcast by donating to my PayPal at paypal.me slash Mr. Kovalenko. You can also find a direct link for donations in the description of this episode. Goodbye for now and so long. <laughs>